Welcome back, listeners. This is Forging Employee Experience. I'm joined here with my co-host, Alexander Norin. How are you, buddy? Doing so good. Who couldn't be happy with? That's right. And, and speaking of being happy and joyful, uh-huh. I want to introduce you to our guest today. He is one of the happiest and most positive people I know on the planet Earth. This is Scott Halford. How are you, Scott? <laughs> I'm doing great. I, that is what a great introduction. I, so I have to pull out my happy and positive and make sure I wear it. Actually, it's a, it's a good thing to wear all the time. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. We are so privileged to have uh, Scott join us here on the show. Let's tell you a little bit about Scott before we jump into this. Scott is an Emmy Award winning writer and producer and an engaging speaker. Scott is a guest lecturer for the Executive MBA program at the Daniels School of Business at the University of Denver. He is founder and president of Complete Intelligence. Uh, Scott, what else do we need to know about you? Not much, other than I, I, I'm sporting a little the back end of a cold, so if I, if I sound a little sexy, that's why. This is Ooh, not all right. <laughs> well, really sounds, setting the, the mood for us here. <laughs> Speaking of the workplace, exactly. let's uh, pump the brakes in. No, we're good. Um, oh, awesome. Absolutely. Scott, one, one last question. Uh, how do you take your coffee? I take it black. There it is. That, you know, no frills, Boom. no fuss. Just get it done. I respect that. I respect that. I, I like a lot of toppings. I'm gonna be honest. I'm like a little, I'm a little kid at heart. Uh, you know, I think that really echoes into uh, why I'm in the employee engagement space. Cause I just want everyone to be happy. And frosting and nice. So your whipped cream. Yours is cream and sugar and oh, all the other man. stuff. You know, I, you know it's, it's like ninety percent I... sugar. Let me just put it that way. It's more of a sugar shot than anything else. Uh, so. Wow, that'll wow. wake you up. It also put you down. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, uh, it's not the best uh, foresight there. But, I mean, it uh, definitely does some. <laughs> Something to your brain, right? You know, well, it's really hard on your brain. Sugar is one of the toughest things that you could put in your body for your that's brain. That's the truth. It's not, yeah. not a great thing. Yeah. No, no, but, it's, uh, it's, it's, but hey, so speaking about the brain, let's get, let's get on to today's topic of conversation. Scott, you obviously have researched this extensively and you speak all over about uh, complete intelligence, emotional intelligence. You wrote a book called activate your brain. So you're very involved in under, helping us understand how to better activate our brains. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you found yourself in this space and why you're passionate about it. Yeah. Um, so I've been speaking on emotional intelligence since uh, 90, 1995 when all the hoopla was made around emotional intelligence. I got onto the bandwagon pretty early and I began working a lot in physician leadership for a, a, a large medical device company. And it was interesting because the, the docs would would not necessarily buy into the thought, you know, the emotional intelligence sounds like it's hug fest and, you know, going to be nicey nice and all that kind of thing, which is, it absolutely is not. It's just about mm-hmm. being appropriate in any given situation. Right. But they wanted to know, and the thing that got them to buy off on it was the, the, the basically the neuroscientific dance between the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system, which is what emotional intelligence is. And so when I gave it that neuro teeth, they bought off into it. Mm-hmm. So once I started doing that, I decided to take a deep dive and get a master's in behavioral neuroscience and attach it to everything that I do. And so that's, that's how I got here. That's how I got to this space. That's amazing. Scott, can you just give us a little bit about what that dance is? I'm, I'm seeing my prefrontal cortex and my limbic system 
exploding doing right something. now. I don't know <laughs> yeah. what you just said. <laughs> give, give, give us a little bit of some insight of what that actually means. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Well, okay, so let's do it like this. So if you gave your, your listeners a visual, if they put up their hand and put the, the palm out, and they basically put their thumb on the inside, like a letter number four, and then took the, the number four fingers and curled them over the thumb, that would be the model of the brain right there, okay? So, <clears throat> pardon me, back up to that number four, and in the middle where that thumb is, that's the limbic system. It's all the junk in the middle of the brain. The limbic system is basically the part that it, it reads all of the environment to look at where should I place this? Is it a dangerous thing or is it a rewarding thing? Reward goes on bottom and the danger goes on top. And then we pay attention to things, you know, that could hurt us in the environment all the way from, from a, an email that is upsetting to somebody not doing what they said they would do. Those are dangerous things um, to, you know, being, be, being fired or to getting feedback is a dangerous thing. And so the brain is, is operated that way. Well, when we're in a danger zone, and it's a, it's a big rush of danger. You know, if somebody just told you that your baby is ugly and that, that, <laughs> that, is, and that in, a, in and of itself is, is something that feels dangerous to you, your next response is going to stay in the emotional brain. All right? So everything begins in the emotional brain. Everything you look at begins in the, in the emotional brain. So when someone says, you know, we're going to, you know, we, we want to find somebody who's not emotional and take the emotion out of a decision, you're actually asking for somebody who is dead. So the, the fact is every single decision you make is, is, is basically tinctured with an emotional valence. And, and mm -hmm. that means that you could not choose what color socks to put on today without some emotion. You have a, you have a druther, right? You have, I'd rather that than this. And that's all emotion. It, 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 emotion is just weight helps make decisions. It helps you to tell when, whether somebody's telling them the truth or not. So back to the limbic system. The limbic system meets all of that and we begin to parse out. Rewarding things go on bottom, danger goes on top. If it is dangerous and it's ultra dangerous, if you perceive it as that, then you're going to respond to it typically with a good deal of neurochemistry that's going to obviously make it feel really intense, this interaction. And it could really be the worst thing that you respond. Um, you know, what we, we, we typically know is the first thing that you communicate out of your mouth or do after there is an intense emotional event, um, if you don't wait, that, that communication will typically be the worst possible choice you could make. Oh, and so been, emotional intelligence I've been there before. is the, <laughs> that's for sure. Okay, right. Yeah. <laughs> on the couch. Well, if, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Well, if you're in any relationship, you can sure. be there, right? It's that, yeah. that, yeah. that instantaneous. Mm -hmm. So it's the gap in between the feeling of the emotion mm -hmm. and the actually response to it. If you just take a pause, we can open up the channel between that limbic system and the prefrontal cortex, which again, if you go back to the hand model, create the number four and put those four fingers on top of the thumb, that big piece right there is the prefrontal cortex. That's the human executive reasoning. It's the smart part of the brain. 
And that's where we have our intelligence. And therefore, we give intelligence to our emotions, emotional intelligence. That's how it mm, all operates together. That makes sense. That's that great. Sense. Boom, boom. Now you're junior neuroscientist, right? Well, <laughs> I was about to say, well, we get a certificate at the end of this? Because I'd really like a certificate. Absolutely. I've got one that I can make up. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting there looking at our hands oh, and making watching, fists. And watching Josh make the fist in the studio was <laughs> worth it enough. Um, a couple of things really struck out, st- stood out to me. Um, but the first and foremost being, in your description there, uh, you emphasized a couple of times this idea of perception. And um, to me, as I think about particularly uh, in, in relationships and uh, especially in the, in the workplace, um, I think sometimes organizations can uh, find themselves in a situation where they're explaining away organizational culture or something by trying to perhaps shift the, uh, I mean, the blame might be too hard of a word, but saying, you know, it's not really a bad place, blah, blah, blah. And, and this idea of perception, how important is this idea of perception in, in an employee or an individual registering that emotional response? Because to me, it sounds like what you're saying is it's everything. If I perceive danger, whether or not it's, it's real uh, is, is irrelevant. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's, there's two pieces and I'll make them nice and brief so that we don't, you know, go down a <laughs> rabbit hole where there are sure, no brains. Sure. Right. <laughs> and the, the, first, the, the first piece is that perception is, is how the, the brain actually begins to uh, release the neural chemistry. And so for instance, if I, perceive that someone not turning on their turn signal while I'm driving it right behind them. That used to be something that really drove me batty. Yeah. And I, I perceive it as a major infraction. And on a scale of one to 10, one being very, very, it's like, meh, doesn't bother me. 10 being absolutely out of my mind, you know, angry. Yeah. And I perceive it as an eight, which I used <laughs> to perceive it as. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, and I, and I have visions of getting out of my car at the next stoplight, breaking their window, and ripping out their window. <laughs> so, I'm so glad I'm not alone. Oh my gosh, this is great, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and so if I have that, my neurochemistry around that is basically the neurochemistry of being in a major battle, sure. and the the neurochemistry around that is very intense and very corrosive over time. Mm-hmm. If I perceive it, if if you're sitting in the car with me. And you perceive the blinker as like, what, what's the big deal, right, kind of thing. You're going to perceive it as a one or a two. And so your neurochemistry actually will be set up as not a reward, but certainly not as a major danger. Right. So changing that perception actually changes the neurochemistry. So you have a say about when a stressful thing happens, whether it is stressful to you or not. And so that perception is huge. The second thing is this, from an organizational standpoint, and, and I really think this is so imperative that we begin to understand this. The brain learns via context, not content. And mm-hmm. so when we put out a memo or we put out a, 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 a company-wide email that says, this is what is happening, what we're doing is providing content because an email has, has the inability, unless we are brilliant writers, and, and most people writing emails are not, of... of of delivering any kind of context and emotional right. texture to it. And so what happens is we take the content of that and we react to it. And the content is like reacting to a spreadsheet. If I put a spreadsheet in front of 10 people and I, all I did was give them the numbers and I said, okay, tell me what you think. Every one of them would say in relation to what they want context. Sure. How does this fit in? So here's the piece that's the kicker. 
the context of a request predicts the outcome of that request. And what that means is this, when we're asking our people to, to go above and beyond and to do extra things, but the context of the request is that people are mad because th things have happened and they, they weren't included right. or that it's just a big demotion, demotivational downer that's going on. The context is negative. And so if you think back to when you were in high school and you wanted to borrow the keys to your dad's car and he was in a bad mood and your mom wasn't there to, 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 to sneak around, <laughs> um, you weighed it or you did a favor or you did something to change it to positive. So positive context in a, in a work environment is critical to getting people to add their discretionary effort, to think, to create. And we know neurochemically that you cannot think and create when you are in that negative space of, of cortisol and other glucocorticoids that make you, you make you nuts, right? So really important to, to check the positive or negative context of the environment changes that, everything. That's an amazing thought, Scott. And I, I think we're starting to touch on, on what we really want to get into, and that's the, the employee engagement part. And you just mentioned discretionary effort. I mean, the, the theme of what we've been talking about here is that if we can't create an environment where our employees feel safe and valued, then it's hard for their brains to even tell them to give more to their work or to actually enjoy it. And so there's maybe the sense of, I don't want to be here because, and there's all of these like low level emotions that are keeping us from getting to that, that performance that we would hope that they would function at. So as you talk about your, your emotional intelligence and your performance psychology, how do you help companies um, shape their culture so that they are um, helping their employees um, perform better through, I guess, brain functionality? Well, um, first off, I, 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 uh, I try to stay as much away from psychology as I possibly can and really enter into the world of neuroscience because psychology is the guess. You know, it's, it, it's right. what we did before right. we could actually do neural mapping. And now, and there's still psychology, don't get me wrong, I, I don't think psychology is, is a, a bad thing or a dead thing. It's, we typically are using it now for, you know, looking at, at, you know, relationship kind of therapy or individual therapy, where we do have to guess and we can't get into everybody's brain. But from, from a, a, an organizational standpoint, to understand kind of the setup of how it is that you get the brain to perform at its maximum velocity, in a way that does not burn out the individual and brings their best self to work, it means we have to, at the most granular level, help our employees understand how to take care of this thing called the brain. I, I work in some of the largest corporations in the world who finally have gotten that. And the interesting thing is, is they're spending a lot of money to create a brain-based culture. And, and, and a brain-friendly culture is very different than, than the cultures of corporations look like even five years ago, 10 years ago. And this switch over is, is imperative if we want to create a place that people want to come to, where they want to flourish, where they actually want to bring that discretionary effort. And the discretionary effort's huge. I don't think people oftentimes understand what that means. And, you know, we've all, have you heard the adage that sometimes we learn as much for the teacher as we do from the teacher? And that's kind Not of where it. discretionary effort plays. <laughs> yeah. And, I need to chew on that one for a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you, if you think about it, the, the, the fact is, is that if you're working for leaders or for a company 
that you, you believe in and they support you and they encourage you and they make you feel big, they enlarge you, what happens is we will do everything we can to please them. Mm, and right, right. the fact is, is that's what students do. And we can bring that to the workplace. But when we have, you know, when it's just, I'm going to ask more from you and more from you and more from you, but I'm not going to pay you anymore. I'm going to ask more from you and more from you and more from you. And guess what? Next year, things are even worse. And I keep asking that. You can only go to that well so many times before people either tone down their discretionary effort by saying, hey, look, you know what? I'm not getting paid anymore for the extra I put in. I'm not getting rewarded by recognition for the extra I put in. I'm just going to bring the baseline. When you have an organization filled with baseline effort, boy, you are, you're, you're ready to go down the tubes. Right. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. The, um, and, and when I think about this concept of, you know, so, so when you, when you think about practical applications, cause it seems to me like an organization, there's, there are so many, um, there's so many little, little, what's the word? things that are just kind of emitting a sense of context to the type of organization from, from the layout, the physical space, from, from the, the tone of communication, from, from the interaction with employees, you know, from the policies that uh, describe, you, you know, how, how work is to get done. It, it seems to me that, that this context piece, um, you know, from your example, when expanded, all of a sudden becomes almost like a full-time, uh, analysis and, and something that you really have to stay on top of, right? To maintain a context uh, inside of an organization such that you can keep tapping that well without it running dry. Is that That's fair to say? Exactly right. I, I mean, you, you just hit on kind of the, the uh, you, you, you hit on the idea of, of why and how understanding brain-based cultures is really important. I, uh, right. I, I just want to tell this real quick aside. Yeah. The, um, the, the, I was in a large corporation and I was talking to their executive vice president of, of uh, HR. And it was so fascinating because, you know, she, she definitely, you know, believed in leadership and all that. And she innocently asked what, what in the world does, you know, very interesting topic, but you know, what does the brain really have to do with, you know, what we're trying to get done here? <laughs> and I, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I paused, I paused and I, I marshaled every ounce of emotional intelligence not to say something to me. You went from um, a 10 to a five, hopefully. <laughs> I, I wasn't anger. Yeah, it wasn't right. anger. Right. It was just, I was absolutely appalled at the idea that, <laughs> that it, it's, not, it's not intuitive, that the brain sure. runs the show. Sure. And the quality of the input into that brain is the quality of the output that you get from employees. So to that end, creating a, a brain-based culture is absolutely having leaders understand that your job is to manage context. Your job is to manage check marks. Your job is to manage uncertainty. Your job is to manage control, so on and so forth. There are certain cravings of the human brain that we have that if you don't understand those and you're not managing, you have not a team of, of you know, finely well-crafted human brains that can run the, the field, the, uh, let alone one, the, the, the fact is, is that what we want to do is, is teach uh, to make this, this team really, really well-crafted as opposed to just, you know, a meh team. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's what's kind of scary, I think, about uh, the, the state of the American workplace, as, as uh, the Gallup poll likes to call it. The, um, it. We've got a lot of meh teams out there. 
So one of the things that I, that I'm thinking about, you know, is, is as we, as we think about how to better uh, incorporate some of these, some of these ideas um, to make, make an environment where, where people are in that context of wanting to, wanting to, wanting to give, give back and give more. Um, what are some practical steps that, that you would advise to, um, to, you know, say I'm a manager that I uh, have a team, they're kind of one of those, you know, meh teams and I, I know they could do better I, I I've got I've got some ideas but I don't really know exactly how to make their steps in the right direction what could I start doing tomorrow is there any low-hanging fruit that I could just use to get some momentum to helping my team start performing better yeah that it's a great question and it's one of the perennial favorites of of HR people and leaders everywhere is how do I maximize my team's ability to be able to hit my revenue or my targets every single quarter Right. And, you know, it's interesting because a couple of things we need to understand. What you're up against is you're up against speed. You're up against the fact that, that Wall Street wants to perform to a certain level every single quarter. And so you're up against the wall. And when you're in a rush, that increases the, the brain's whole response to the context. The context is that it's dangerous because we, we have a deadline. If we don't hit it, we're not going to hit our bonus or we're just simply not going to perform very well. So you're up against that and a, a number of other things in the environment. But the practical things that you can do on a regular basis to kind of slow down the machine a little bit and help people to jump in with full feet and whole brain is to, number one, I, I believe that the single most important thing that you can do is to help people manage their expectations around the environment. It's going to be uncertain. It is difficult here. We do hard things. And to, to not let employees go to the idea that, you know, it, it feels awful here because everything's changing. Well, everything is always changing. The brain hates uncertainty. So we know that. We know that it hates uncertainty because it was wired to hate coming out of the cave to an environment where everything was vertical and all of a sudden something horizontal appears, you know, a beast, and it could kill them. Well, that architecture followed us into today. Mm. And the fact is, is that we have to override that architecture because it's really not that difficult when you look at it to, to, to change back office software. Yeah, it's, it's cumbersome. Yes, you're gonna have mistakes. Yes, you're gonna have people going, kicking and screaming, but they're going because they don't want to change. The brain doesn't like to change. But here's the thing, the paradox is that it grows from it. So if we get the leaders to understand you, you really want to manage uncertainty by telling people it's always going to feel this way. It's always a little scratchy here because we do hard things. If we did easy things, you would want to go to your competitor. Right? We do hard things here. So that's the first thing. Managing around the idea that we do difficult things, it's always going to be, feel a little scratchy. Right. The second thing is to, to, to manage the idea around um, completion. The brain pays attention to danger and threat all day long. And the second thing it pays very close attention to are incomplete tasks. So when you don't have things on your to-do list that are done, you get to the end of the day, if you were distracted all day long by other people's work, by things that are not planned, which is every day, right? But if your whole day looks like that and you're not checking off of your list the things that you want to, you will get to the end of the day and say, I didn't get anything done. But in fact, you did get a lot done. You got a lot done for customers. You got a lot done for other employees. 
And so what we want to begin to do is understand that the brain likes check marks. It loves check marks. As a matter of fact, when you think about your to-do list, right? You get something done, what do you do? I mean, how does it feel when you- Feels awesome. Right. If you, boom. And that's not an accident because dopamine, the neurotransmitter that gives you that, that bump of joy, that bump of, of, of a sense of accomplishment, that happens by getting your check marks done. So if you lead through check marks, you check your people's check marks, you check out your people's check marks, look at each one of you, the, the, your, your immediate reports and literally have a meeting around what is it that you've got on your list? And not to micromanage, but to make sure that you're aligned on the check marks. And then when people get check marks, everybody's check marking around the things that make this team really you know, crackle. And the, the check marks are huge. It not only will get you to get things done, but it will also create a sense of huge well-being for the team. And that's when teams go, boom, bring it on. We can do hard things. Let's do it. Well, man, Scott, that, that was very pertinent. I just love the themes of helping discover the intrinsic motivators in our employees, help get aligned on the same goals, check marking boxes together and, and developing like a reward system for that. Like so many great themes around employee engagement, employee experience. And we just want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today. If our listeners want to keep in touch with you, how do we find you? You can find me at www.completeintelligence.com or my name.com, scotthelford.com. And uh, that's where they can go. They can, if they, they're interested in the book, um, they can go to Amazon and it's Activate Your Brain. Awesome. Wonderful. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We look forward to having you back again. 